the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host tonight, Gavin Tolometti. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we are here with Shannon Hibbard. Welcome to our show, Shannon. Hi, everyone. Awesome. So, Shannon, tell us about your academic journey. How did you come to be interested in planetary sciences and uh, geography, uh, geology? And um, tell us about yourself and your background. Sure. Yeah. So um, it started as an undergrad when I was an undergrad. Um, I was taking geology. Actually, let me start over. So it started when I was an undergrad. I actually started um, as an aerospace engineer because I was really interested in satellites that went to space. Um, nice. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a really cool idea of sending some sort of spacecraft to another planet or planetary body and collecting data that we could bring back to Mars or that we could bring back to Earth. Um, and uh, realized that physics wasn't really my thing or at least the way it was taught to me um so i looked into other options and and found that geology was equally cool um and also another way to include um, planetary science um and then i focused mostly on earth studies but was introduced to um, mars research or specifically ice on Mars. Um, in my undergrad, I, I was offered a field assistantship or asked to be a field assistant uh, in Antarctica. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and, um, and it was with this group from University of Texas at Austin um, that they were looking at a bunch of different things, but um, they were looking at buried ice across Antarctica in, in the dry valleys. Um, and they were looking for buried ice to one, figure out, I guess, why that ice is still there and how slowly it's uh, melting or sublimating, but also relating that to ice on Mars. So there's a lot of buried ice on Mars. And in Antarctica, since it has very similar um, climate conditions, they were relating the two to each other. So I got introduced to it in uh, my undergrad and my master's, I went a totally different route, um, mostly because that's uh, the project that I landed. Um, and- uh, Yeah, I think that's what we all do. We all just change our paths so often. Yeah, but... yeah. But I knew I still wanted to work on um, uh, ice on Mars. So I just kind of taught myself while I was actually studying impact processes um, on Precambrian Earth in my master's. And then finally, for my PhD, um, I applied for a project and landed this one with Oz, or landed this one at Western. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you've had quite a journey to get to make your way here at Western. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, from aerospace engineering to Martian science. So, but what is it particularly about Mars and its ice that really got your attention? Um, I think it was that we can use Earth as a natural laboratory to study it. Like, I was already interested in studying 
other planetary bodies or at least you know something that we could send to another planetary body um, and get information and so I think when I went to Antarctica not only is Antarctica beautiful and um, and has like a lot of cool geology a lot of cool ice related um, geology and geomorphology uh, but the fact that you could relate that back to to Mars was really fascinating that is super cool. Um, I mean, I guess we would like to know more about how you relate the structures of various terrains in, in these places that you've been and how studying these structures, these different landscapes helps you to learn more about the possible structures in Mars where you do find uh, water ice. So could you tell us a bit about the story behind the structural similarities and why you study these structures? Yeah, so I look um, mostly at paraglacial landforms. So what's paraglacial, that? Yeah, so paraglacial landforms, um, they form from the freezing and thawing of frozen ground. Uh, so the freezing and thawing of permafrost. And it's kind of while the different types of landforms you'll get just from the freezing and thawing of a ground, um, that creates a lot of stress on the substrate, right, on the material. And so that can cause it to crack, that can cause it to uplift, uh, that can cause it to sink, it can cause all sorts of things. And if you continue that over years, many years, then it can create these really amazing landforms, which are are low-lying landforms. I mean, they're on the ground, um, but you can get this thing called pattern ground, which you see a lot of the same patterns in a row. So um, I sent you a picture of polygonal patterns as well as um, brain-like patterns. You can have circular patterns. Um, patternization, I guess, is all just from freezing and thawing of ground. And so we see that on Earth. Um, but we also see that in the mid-latitudes of Mars, so around 20 to 60 degrees in both hemispheres. And that only forms when you have this thermal contraction and extension on, on, the, on the permafrost. And so you know that there's ice somewhere in the subsurface of Mars. We don't know how much, um, in the mid-latitudes at least. It could just be interstitial ice, so ice that's filling the pore spaces of the ground, or it could be buried massive deposits of ice. Um, and you can get very similar looking landforms at the surface, regardless of how much ice you have in the subsurface. Um, and so my job is to try and look for a distinction of how can we identify um, where these patterned grounds are overlying uh, big, massive deposits of ice versus just pore filling ice. Okay, I want to quickly backtrack for a second. You mentioned brain terrain. Now I gotta know, does that look exactly how it sounds? It does. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just blew my mind away. I, I read that as well. I'm like, okay, brain terrain. I didn't figure out the obvious, perhaps. Picturing all the pictures of a human brain I remember in school and just putting it on the surface of our planet and thinking like, that's strange, but it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's quite Great descriptive. Turn. So most, um, 
terms we use to describe landforms on Mars, we want to try and be as descriptive as possible and move away from interpretational words. And so brain terrain, you're not adding any interpretation into that. You're just basically describing the way it looks, its morphology, which looks like the surface of a brain that is on the terrain. Okay, I guess I was wondering, I mean, this might be a silly question. Could you tell us what an Earth, or rather Mars, is water, ice, and how is it important as a fuel resource, uh, and whether or not, or what the prospects look like for us to use that as a fuel resource? Yeah, so um, as we're talking about future human missions to Mars, we need to start to think about fuel. So fuel is very heavy, um, and we want to be able to not only send the humans to Mars, but get them back. Um, but we also want to send, right, we also want to send a lot of cool sciencey stuff uh, to Mars and bring some cool sciencey stuff back. Um, so if we can minimize the amount of uh, weight that is contributed to fuel, then we can have more space for that other fun stuff. Um, like humans and science. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so engineers, I mean, this isn't necessarily something I focus on, but engineers are trying to find a way to utilize in situ resources. So resources that are already there on Mars, utilize them that we can to convert to fuel. Um, and water ice, would be one way of doing that where you can separate the hydrogen and the oxygen and use that to contribute to fuel pro processing. Um, and if we can manage that, then we don't have to bring as much fuel there. The only issue with that is, um, do you know why we typically take off uh, in Florida or California? Because we're closer to the equator and it's easier to leave Earth around the equator, as much as I know. Yeah, so that's part of it, but also because the Earth is spinning the fastest at the equator, and so we get this free acceleration, essentially, and thus use less fuel um, because we can, we can utilize um, that velocity as free acceleration. And so we want to generally land somewhere close to the equator on Mars so that when we take off and bring the humans back, we're using less fuel. However, the issue with that is water ice on Mars is mostly found in the mid-latitudes and the polar latitudes. So I'm trying to find, um, based off of the surface morphology, uh, the paraglacial and glacial surface morphology, um, where are the lowest lying mid-latitudes that show evidence of abundant uh, water ice that we could potentially land there and get as close to the equator as possible. Yeah, I must say it must be quite difficult to plan a landing in the, as you said, mid to upper latitudes towards the poles because the orbiting must be a lot more complex since it's, you know, probably have to change your orbit once you get there and that just adds more money, more complications. And it's already pretty difficult, I imagine, to send even just a robot over to Mars, let alone a couple humans to do the job as well. Right, right. And then there's all like there's all these other landing constraints that engineers need to think about too. Um, but the northern hemisphere of Mars is pretty 
low lying, pretty flat, pretty bland, which is typically what uh, engineers want when it comes to landing constraints. Yeah, that's not where the interesting stuff is, though. <laughs> wait, well, wait maybe. a minute. There's lots of interesting <laughs> stuff in flat bland. I'm, I'm biased. I'm biased because I study volcanoes. So for me, that's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But, but if you're focusing on the equator, is it like a particular area that you've got your, your eye fixed on? Yeah. So I am advocating for Arcadia planitia, uh, which is at about um, 200 degrees east and um, 35 to well, just the region I'm looking at, it's bigger than this, but 35 to 45 degrees north on, on Mars. And so um, I'm advocating and looking at Arcadia Planitia because there's a lot of evidence of near surface water ice. So water ice that's, you know, maybe a few centimeters to a few meters beneath the surface um, that makes it more accessible. And I guess for widespread ice. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, that's all. Oh, uh, I, I mean, I, I was wondering. There must be. You must be also finding a good balance between making sure that the water ice is accessible for people, but also that it's perhaps in abundance, or the quantity is more, or the depth of the ice is more as well. So, how do you strike a good balance between? not having a very dangerous terrain and not requiring too much work, but also, oh my goodness, there's a lot of water ice over here. Yeah, so I feel like Arcadia Planitia just kind of fits all of the constraints as best as it can. Um, Did you say it's like the Goldilocks zone or something I, like that? I think so. Actually, I think NASA thinks so too. I saw um, on a website this treasure map of where to find water ice and it highlighted Arcadia Planitia as well as um, some other places just east and west of Arcadia Planitia. So I'm not alone in this, um, but there are other sites that that SpaceX and, and NASA are considering um, as potential landing sites, but Arcadia Planitia um, is and should be one of them because it's, it's flat lying, it's low altitude, it's uh, pretty bland, a little dusty, but not really rocky. It's got a lot of evidence for widespread ice, um, as well as near surface ice. So it's a good spot. And so what data or instruments do does NASA or what do you use to, to, to really figure out how much water ice is maybe under all of these um, uh, terrains that you're studying? Is there a particular type or do you have to go off of a lot of literature? So a lot of things. So yeah, I have to go off of a lot of literature. Um, literature is my friend. So people that do other work on this site, it's very helpful. Um, but I also use multiple data sets, um, orbital data sets for Mars that can give you an idea of what's beneath the subsurface. And then my pride and joy is using Earth analogs. So we, we can't really go to Mars right now and touch and probe and figure things out there, but we can use Earth. And although it's not a one-to-one -one relationship, there's a lot of similarities and we need to understand the fundamental processes behind paraglacial and, and glacial landforms 
on Earth to better understand them on Mars, um, even if it's not one-to-one. -one. And so I use um, Earth analogs uh, mostly, but also by looking at literature and, and other data sets. I was going to say, like, so what Earth analogs do you use? I mean, to find something close to a Martian terrain with ice, I imagine you probably have to go very far north or very far south. True. So there's a lot of work uh, done in Antarctica that is related to Mars, which is where I started. Um, and there's very few work or few studies done in the Canadian high Arctic. There's some other Arctic studies, um, mostly the lower Arctic, but the high Arctic, we're, we're thinking, you know, 70 north and above, um, there's very few studies there. And that's because it's vastly remote and also quite expensive to get to. And so um, I work with Dr. Gordon Ozinski and he has been doing field work in the Canadian high Arctic for like 20 years plus, um, looking at a wide range of geological investigations, one of which is looking at these paraglacial and glacial features because it's quite abundant there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a geomorphological playground. So when do you think we can land on Mars? So <laughs> I'm pretty sure, <laughs> um, at least according to the US, and I don't remember this officially off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure Congress passed a bill or something saying that we need to get there by 2023. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Isn't the Artemis program to go to the moon 2024? Right, yeah. So that's not going to happen. But um, I don't know when that was passed, but I remember reading that um, where it's like basically law, we got to go by 2023, which isn't going to happen. But is that a unanimous thing or is it like still um, partisan? I, I don't remember. I'm not sure. I wish I looked up the details before this. Um, we want to go in the next 20 to 30 years. I think that's what Elon Musk has been saying, um, which I think is doable. Like if you think about when we went to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the 60s, like we I mean, we had a lot of funding going towards that um, and a, a, a governmental or political motivator to go but um but we were i mean we were able to pull that off um with the quote-unquote little technology we had back then and so with all the technology we have now i mean i think we can do it it's just a matter of funding um and interest i suppose but i know that um elon musk has said in the next like 20 to 30 years i think nasa's on board with that too but the Artemis uh, mission, so this new mission to return to the moon, is a way to kind of practice, uh, to, to kind of practice going to, um, uh, well, going to the moon and using different things that we might want to use on Mars um, and maybe potentially creating a base station there. Wouldn't it be awesome if this thing did happen in our life, uh, lifetime and I'm sure you would be super excited given that your research and your work that you've done can, well, we can put into practice in a very real sense as well. Yeah, it would be super exciting. Um, I think I'm, I'm mostly excited for us to get there, even just on an unmanned ship, 
just to get to one of these sites and learn more about the sites that we've all, you know, all these researchers have been studying to know, like, is what we're seeing, are these things that we're predicting, are they real, are, are they true? And then we'd learn even more about Mars. And then especially if we sent humans there, we could learn so much more, which would be awesome. Well, I have to say, I don't know if I'm being not optimistic enough, but I think like you, I would be happy if they just sent a, if it was just like an, an, a ship that didn't land, if they could at least get to Mars in my lifetime, I think I'd be happy. But I know everyone keeps talking about the colonization of Mars, which personally, I don't see that happening, at least in our lifetime, because there's no, there's nowhere near enough funding to even send a ship with people right now. But depending on how Artemis goes, if the moon, I think if the moon mission's successful, the, Mar the Mars mission looks a lot more promising. Yeah, and colonization of Mars, there's a lot more than just figuring out how to get there and back involved in that. I mean, there's politics, there's ethics, economics, there's so much more <laughs> involved that, yeah, um, I think that would be, that, that'll be a while until we get to that point. So I was wondering, Shannon, if there were some other projects as well uh, that are closely linked to your specific research as well, but you've also probably have some other interests as well um that are kind of maybe close neighborhood research to your own uh field of study um is are there some other things that is, as well that interest you um in your field in geology yeah yeah so um i mean i think geology is just pretty cool in general um one thing i do kind of miss is working with hard rocks. So now I work with soil, sediments, and um, and ice, uh, water ice, which is super cool. I love it. Um, but I do kind of miss hard rock geology. Um, and so in my master's, I was working on that impact geochemistry, uh, and I was I was working with you know few billion year old rocks and looking at the geochemistry of them um, as best as you can with billion-year-old rocks to, uh, to figure out its original composition, which I think is super cool. Um, I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think geochemistry is super cool. Um, that's a field I would, I would love to continue in also. Um, and yeah, really anything dealing with like old rocks. Like I, I deal with very recent, very recent sediments and soil and ice um, that can date back to the last uh, glacial maximum, like 20,000 years ago or something. Or like if I get lucky in Antarctica, maybe some like million year old ice or something, which is cool. But so, oh, go ahead. What is it about, um, what is it? about old rocks that fascinates you or that sort of dimension that really uh, makes you very excited as well? I think because we weren't around. We, and, and there's so much about our early earth that we don't understand and don't know yet. And so the fact that we still have rocks around 
to kind of give us a hint into what, or I guess not a hint, but a give us a peek into what used to be and what processes were going on then is really cool to me. Um, just understanding how Earth evolved in general. And well, looking back at to old Earth and saying that you can only get to look at more recent sediments, you could argue that the the rocks and the landforms you're looking on, looking at Mars, are probably a lot older. So you could say you are looking at some ancient space rocks. <laughs> That's so. a really good point. I actually but, am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mars <laughs> is, um, I'm looking at the, the most recent uh, time period, which goes back like 3.5 billion years. So well, there, there we go. go. I'm working on the same <laughs> age rocks. Shannon, so in terms of, I mean, I sometimes ask this question and I'm wondering, do you have any favorite movie or um, a movie that you really like because it's linked to some of the research you do or concerns sort of uh, planetary um, and you know, move, moving to different planets or something like that. Do you have any movie in mind that you would want to recommend others or suggest others that would be informative in an important way? Uh, oh, the Martian yeah, the, popped up yeah, yeah, the Martian is exactly what just popped up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I recommend reading the book. I think I think they did a great job with the movie too. But um, the book is is really well done and really interesting. Yeah, I might read it again uh, here shortly because I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and it's it's really cool. It's not really yeah, it's really cool. You just gotta read. <laughs> okay, Shannon approves it. <laughs> and uh Keep it approval. <laughs> yeah and with the martian i think the the writer um consulted with a bunch of scientists to make it as accurate as possible which is really cool maybe minus the using your own poop to grow potatoes i think so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you gotta make Pretty sure a lot of botanists were cringing <laughs> oh but th that sounds really good but we're just about out of, out of time unfortunately for episodes so thank you so much for coming on shannon yeah thank you for having me so on Mars, water, ice, and looking for using that for missions to Mars and beyond in the future, if anyone wants to learn more about your research, is there a website they can go to, an email or a social media tag that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I have a website. Um, it's www.shannonmars.com, kind of like Shannon Mars. Um, so S-H-A-N-N-O-N-Mars.com. But also I have Twitter which I need to post on more, but that's also <laughs> Shannon Mars. Um, but the O in this case is a zero. Okay. We'll make sure to add that into the show notes for everyone listening to find out more about what Shannon does in re her research. Thank you very again. Thank you. Thank you. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Gavin, and my co-host was Yusuf, and we've been speaking with Shannon Hibbard. And this episode was produced by Greg Robertson. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on the radio at chrw 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great day.